Hello, this is Roscast. Welcome to the final episode of 2022. I'm Ros, bringing you a Christmas special with love and heartfelt season's greetings. Behind the famous tree in Trafalgar Square lies the tale of a heroic monarch who saved Norway in its darkest hour. What follows is a summary of and some excerpts from The King and the Christmas Tree by A.N. Wilson, writer of popular history, published in October 2021. The book is some 176 pages, so for this podcast, the editing and ordering of content are down to me. Apologies for any non-sequiturs or clumsy transitioning, and indeed for my mangled pronunciation of Norwegian names and places. Every year, a 65-foot tree is erected in Trafalgar Square and the people of London know that Christmas has begun. At the base of the tree stands a plaque bearing these words. This tree is given by the city of Oslo as a token of Norwegian gratitude to the people of London for their assistance during the years 1940 to 1945. A tree has been given annually since 1942. Though it comes and goes each year and is to that extent as ephemeral as the seasons, the Norwegian Christmas tree could claim to be among the most remarkable memorials contained in that square, which is so packed with links to history. It is a token of the friendship between two northern democracies. It is also a memorial to one of the greatest advertisements for monarchy. History is not a neutral story. The monuments erected to commemorate the men and women of previous centuries are often uncomfortable reminders that in the past people had different perspectives, different scales of value altogether. Occasionally, however, when we return to that foreign country, the past, we are confronted with a story which stirs uncomplicated admiration, which flutters our hearts, which makes us feel that wicked and muddled and misguided as the human race has so often been, just occasionally there has arisen a person of courage, integrity, decency, at a period in history when these qualities were under threat. By his refusal to surrender those values to an unspeakable evil, by his love of his country, of which he was the king in exile, King Hakon VII of Norway was such a man. He was undoubtedly one of the heroes of the Second World War. His heroism consisted not merely in great physical courage, but also in his humility. He was prepared to lay down his life for the principle of parliamentary democracy and a constitutional monarchy. On the 9th of April 1940, German warships advanced up the fjord into the Norwegian capital, heavily supported by aircraft. Determined as the the Norwegians might have been to resist the invaders, they stood no chance against the mightiest military force in Europe. What should they do? Their Scandinavian neighbours could see that the only sensible option was to recognise the power of the Third Reich. Sweden remained neutral in the war, as had Norway, until it was invaded. It took Denmark just six hours after the arrival of the Germans to realise that armed resistance was pointless. But the Norwegian government saw that while the situation was, for the time being, militarily hopeless, this did not alter the political facts of the case. Norway was a parliamentary democracy. It was a new nation which had achieved its independence from Sweden less than half a century before. The nation chose to become a constitutional monarchy, offering the crown to to Prince Karl of Denmark. He had been crowned in Trondheim Cathedral in November 1906, taking the name King Hakon VII. He understood completely what his obligation was, to protect the fledgling democratic nation, 
and no constitutional monarch could have faced a more threatening challenge than Hakon faced in April 1940. The German minister or ambassador, Dr. Kurt Breuer, informed the king that his new prime minister was to be the fascist Wigdung Quisling. Hakon was calm and resolute. This, he replied, was impossible. He had undertaken in 1906 to uphold the constitution of Norway and Quisling had not been elected. The king held a council of state. He stressed that he could, under no circumstances, countenance replacing his democratically elected government with that of Quisling and laid out in stark terms his personal position. I quote, That responsibility for the misfortunes that will come to the country and its people if this demand is refused to be laid upon me has made a profound impression upon me. It is a heavy responsibility, so heavy that I shudder to bear it. The decision must be with the government, but my attitude is clear. I cannot agree to the German demands. That would conflict with all that I have regarded as my duty as King of Norway since I came to the country nearly 35 years ago. I have striven to create a tradition in the new Kingdom of Norway, a tradition that accorded with the spirit of the country and with Norwegian political thought. I have wished to create a constitutional monarchy, monarchy in loyalty to the people whose call I accepted in 1905. I cannot depart from that line. I do not wish that to be a decisive factor where the government is concerned. I do not want that to influence the government's decision nor to be used as a basis for it. But I have searched my heart and considered my attitude and I cannot appoint Quisling, whom I know to enjoy no confidence either with the people as a whole nor with the people's representatives, the Storting and the Ministers of State. If, therefore, the government should decide to agree to the German demands and I fully understand the grounds that speak in favour of doing so, in view of the dangers hanging over the country and the fact that so many young Norwegians would have to give their lives in the war, then there would be no alternative for me but to abdicate, renounce the throne of Norway, for me and my house. I have adopted this attitude after a hard struggle and much heart-searching. I wanted to inform you of this so that you could be clear as to my attitude, but I would ask you to understand that I am not trying to put the government in a dilemma. I do not want my attitude, which I cannot hide, to be decisive for the government. The government must adopt its own attitude, independently of my personal one. But I think I should make it clear how I look at the matter. End quote. However, the whole council unanimously agreed to reject the German ultimatum. Foreign Minister Kurt telephoned Breuer with the government's firm rejection of the Germans' demands. Breuer was at this point in Eidsvoll, some 150 miles southwest of Nybersgund, and desperate to have a second meeting with the king, but this was refused. The king had said that from now onwards the Germans must negotiate with his foreign minister. Breuer assured the king that the sovereignty of Norway was unthreatened by the German presence and that the present crisis was the fault of Britain alone. The next day, many foreign diplomats had made their way to Nybersgund Forest to hear for themselves what the Norwegian government had decided. A line of diplomatic cars, French, Swedish, Polish, British, stretched down the road. One Captain Ergens came from Oslo. He turned out to have been sent by Quisling to offer the king one last chance to accept collaboration with the Nazis. Hakon dismissed him with contempt. That evening, as the diplomats went away, air raid warnings sounded. Hitler himself had ordered that 
that the king should be taken dead or alive. The king and his entourage were at this junction still dangerously south of Trondheim. Hakon had stayed as near as possible for as long as possible to General Rouge. Now it was imperative that he evade capture. Aware that he was quite likely to be found and apprehended by the Germans, the king slept in his uniform, fearful that they would be able to punish humiliating photographs of him wearing pyjamas. He and the crown prince evaded capture for several weeks and refusing the suggestion that he should escape to Sweden, he evaded the Nazi assassins, travelling with his son and a small entourage through the snows as snipers and bombers pursued them. In early June, the king and the crown prince travelled to Tromso to meet the cabinet. On the 7th of June, the king presided over a cabinet meeting for the last time on Norwegian soil. It was exactly 35 years since Norway had become independent of Sweden. That afternoon, Hakon, Crown Prince Olav and a few of their ministers went down to the shore and in light drizzle were taken out to the naval cruiser HMS Devonshire. The king left Norway with the most bitter sorrow. Three days later, on the 10th of June, the Devonshire arrived at Gourock near Glasgow and the same evening the king and his party travelled to London. The train was met by King George VI and the two kings and the Crown Prince drove to Buckingham Palace. The London exile had begun. Hakon moved the Norwegian government out of Oslo and eventually set it up in London. What happened after the German invasion was truly extraordinary. Hakon and his government were far more astute than most of the other European countries when invaded by the Nazis. First they realised that the Nazis were running a brigand state intent on plunder, especially of the National Gold Reserve. Hakon arranged immediately for the entire Norwegian Gold Reserve to be smuggled out of the country on a vessel of the Royal Navy. Secondly, he realised the vital importance of the Norwegian Merchant Navy to the Allies' cause. Though Norway is a small country, its Merchant Navy is substantial, and despite prodigious losses over the next five years, it managed to keep the Allies fuelled and fed. Without the Norwegian Merchant Navy, the war at sea and in the air would have ended with an easy German victory. Thirdly, Hakon saw that when he accepted the role of a constitutional monarch, he was not just becoming a ceremonial figurine. He was appointed to defend the vital principle of democratic freedom, which in 1940 the Nazis and the Communists looked as if they had all but obliterated from the political story. He was known personally to hundreds of Norwegians and his involvement with their war effort was seen to be symbolic but also practical. He was much more than just a figurehead. So it was that when he reached his 70th birthday in August 1942, there was an outpouring of affection and admiration from Norwegians in Norway, in Britain and all over the world. This year of horrors was a very dark time worldwide, but as well as the King of Norway's birthday celebrations in August, towards the end of the year there occurred one of those seemingly small events which shone a light in the darkness. A brave Norwegian resistance fighter, Mons Urangsveg, was taking part in a commando raid on, a, on the tiny island of His, Hisoi, two miles out to sea on the west coast of Norway between Bergen and Haugsund. In the, 19, in the 1890s, Dr Christian Heitmann had come here and established an arboretum, so it was a densely forested place, today popular as a bathing resort. Urangsveg, who was serving in the Norwegian army, cut down a Norwegian pine, intending it as a gift to his exiled king. It was taken on board a tanker and transported to the British Isles and then onward to where the king was living in London. 
The king's decision, taken jointly with his government, that a free Norway, a sort of platonic Norway still existed, in defiance of the miserable, observable realities at home, had at the time been regarded as a defiance of common sense. The sensible thing, as he was told by the king of Sweden, was simply to give up. Transporting the Norwegian pine was not a sensible thing. It was, however, a palpable organic part of Norway. It had grown out of Norwegian soil and was sent to Norway's king, to the man who had demonstrated the unconquerable potency of not doing the sensible thing. Inside and outside Norway, the struggle would go on. History more more and more recognises how vital merchant navies were to the lives of the combatants in the Second World War. Obviously, by definition, a merchant navy is not at any one time all likely to be at home, and by great good fortune, most of the Norwegian merchant navy was at sea in April 1940. Had the king and the prime minister accepted the German proposals, however, this merchant fleet would have been under Hitler's command. Instead, nearly a 1,000 merchant vessels and 30,000 Norwegian merchant seamen were now at the disposal of the Allies. The Norwegian State Broadcasting Corporation was re-established in London, as was the Bank of Norway with its vast gold hoard. The few Norwegian naval vessels which had avoided capture or destruction by the Germans, 13 ships headed by the famous destroyer Sleipner, were now on active service again in international or British waters. For the next five years, the king and his government in exile kept alive the spirit of resistance to the Nazis. This was not just a form of words. Commando raids by Norwegian forces did vital work, never more so than when they destroyed the heavy water of Norsk Hydro, which would otherwise have enabled the Nazis to build an atom bomb. At Vemork, deep in the mountains of southern Norway, the Norsk Hydroelectric Hydroelectric Company was the only firm in the world producing a substance known as heavy water. It has a chemical formula, D2O, rather than the H2O, which runs out of our taps. Heavy water freezes at a higher temperature, boils at a higher temperature, and when concentrated, weighs approximately 11% more than ordinary water. An Austrian science by the name of Dr. Hans Suess, working for the Germans to pioneer the possibility of making an atomic bomb believed that heavy water was the ideal nuclear moderator which would produce a nuclear reaction in a laboratory, the first stage towards the Nazis being able to produce their own nuclear capability. The Germans began to order vast quantities of heavy water from Norsk Hydro even before the invasion of April 1940. When tipped off by a member of the French Secret Service as to the Nazis' reason for doing this, Norsk Hydro had cancelled delivery of heavy water to Germany, but once the country had been overrun by Nazis, the danger became acute. Still, the Norsk Hydro plant was only producing 10 kilograms of heavy water a month, and for the German activities to be effective, they needed much more, something like 3,000 kilograms. It was 1941 before the messages began to reach British intelligence that the Germans were putting pressure on Norsk Hydro to increase production. They dropped a Norwegian resistance fighter, who was also a hydroelectrical engineer, Einar Skinnerland, back into Norway. He obtained work at the plant and had the good luck to be there when Dr Hans Seuss paid a visit, blabbing indiscreetly about the German nuclear energy programme. By late 1941, a Norwegian scientist working at Norsk's Hydro-Wehrmark plant, Dr Jormar Brunn, who had escaped Germany to Sweden and come to London, confirmed that Germany was definitely well advanced towards the manufacture of a nuclear bomb. Clearly, of the many commando raids carried out by Norwegian forces during the war, this was going to be the most vital. 
since it was now apparent to the Allies that it was not tolerable to envisage an increasingly volatile German leader with the means and power of bringing about nuclear destruction. An effective raid on Norse Hydro was now an absolute necessity. The first attempted raid on the Vermont plant in October 1942 was a failure at the cost of 40 servicemen's lives, which made a second attack both all the more necessary to halt production of the heavy water and the development of the German atom bomb and more difficult because the Nazis were now aware that the Allies knew of their nuclear ambitions. From the outset, it was clear that this second attempt on the Vermont plant, if it was to succeed, would be one of the most ingenious sabotage operations of the war. The raiding party of nine, all Norwegians, was dropped in two separate places, some 30 miles from Vermont, in the thickest of winter snow in February 1943. Led by Lieutenant Joachim Runeberg, they skied across the country, carrying on their backs the high explosive charges prepared in England. When they reached thick woodland, they removed their skis and trudged over a mile with their rifles, luggage and heavy explosive on their backs and crossed the river Manor, which, as they had anticipated, was thick with ice. With phenomenal sang-froid, when they reached the factory, the party broke into two groups and managed to attach explosive charges onto the heavy water tanks, placing two-minute charges and 30-second fuses on each cell containing a tank. The incessant hum of the factory was so loud that the explosions were barely heard. 2,000 pounds of heavy water had spilled out onto the floor. Shrapnel had punched holes in all pipes and tubes at the installation. Just nine men, without a shot being fired, had managed to stymie the entire Nazi plan for building a nuclear weapon. Moreover, they managed to escape. Five of them, having relocated their hidden skis in the woods, got away across the border to Sweden, an 18-day journey. Two headed for Oslo to continue resistance work. The others went into hiding. General Niklaus von Fallenhorst, German commander-in-chief in Norway, spoke like the experienced soldier he was when he said, it was the best coup I have ever seen. Without those few commandos, history could have been horrifically different. Daubed on walls in paint, drawn in the snow, scraped on the ice all over Norway, the cipher H7, Hakon Seventh became for the Norwegians the focus of their resistance and their belief in the cause. The raid on Norse Hydro was the neatest in the Norwegian war story, but there were countless acts of courage and, and ingenuity in the long years before victory. So the journey of the tree from Oslo to Trafalgar Square each year recalls not only the relatively recent alliance between Norway and Britain, but also the values of decency, love and home, of which the Christmas tree was a symbol. The switching on of the Trafalgar Square tree lights is done by civic dignitaries. The people of London and the people of Norway do not need an autocrat to be present at such a celebration as this. They are celebrating Christmas, yes, but perhaps unwittingly they are also celebrating their civic freedoms, their right to vote, their freedom of thought and expression, all the political beliefs for which their forebears fought so bravely in the Second World War. Professional historians long ago discarded the great man theory of history. Nevertheless, most of us can sometimes look back at the past and recognise that it was the personal qualities of courage and goodness of one woman or man that did in fact alter historical events. It would have been much easier for King Hakon and the government of Norway to submit in April 1940 to the inevitability of what happened. Had they done so... Had the Norwegian merchant navy passed into Nazi hands, 
those defiant Norwegians who scrawled H7 on walls, daubed H7 across the hated features of Quisling on the posters and drew H7 with sticks in the thick snow, knew that King Hakon VII embodied what they were fighting for and that he too, in exile though he was, was fighting for them. It was the year after the king returned to Oslo when the city remembered the 1942 raid on Hisoy and the gift of a Christmas tree to Hakon in his London exile. From this memory sprang a tradition that has been continued from 1947 to this day. It was in memory of that Christmas tree sent during the war by his king, to his king by a Norwegian commando that the germ of the idea grew. In the immediate aftermath of war, in austere times, it was not possible to organise, but by 1947, the year when Princess Elizabeth married Prince Philip, an event attended by King Hakon, the city of Oslo, began the tradition which is maintained to this day. The tree has been chosen long before, sometimes even years before it is cut down. It is selected with great care in the spring before it is felled. They usually choose a tree of around 80 years old and they are looking for one with vigorous growth at least 20 metres high. And for the sake of practicality, it also has to be near the road to make transportation easier. From the moment the tree is selected, the foresters revere and cosset her. They call her the Queen of the Forest. When the time comes for felling towards the end of November, Norwegian schoolchildren gather to sing carols. British representatives, usually the Lord Ware, Lord Mayor of Westminster and the British Ambassador to Norway take part in the felling itself, typically with the Mayor of Oslo holding one end of the saw and the Lord Mayor of Westminster the other, for the cameras at least. Luckily for all concerned, the complicated job of truly cutting through the trunk, lifting the tree into the air onto a crane and deliberately lowering it into a carefully constructed crib is left to the experts. It then begins its journey to the United Kingdom. Incidentally, it is, not it is not the only tree donated to Britain by Norway. Each year, a tree is sent to Orkney, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Newcastle and Grimsby, all places with strong Norwegian connections. But it is the Trafalgar Square tree which has become best known throughout the world. It reminds us of the political and social values that were being defended with such amazing valour and determination when the first tree was erected in 1942. That tree, and every tree since, has spoken of what the friendship stood for between Norway, invaded but refusing to accept conquest, and Britain, resisting, not the German-speaking people who probably invented the idea of Christmas trees, but the dark powers of the Third Reich. The hundreds of white lights that decorate the tree are beacons of an, an imperishable light, memorials of a remarkable story. The story reminds us how much difference can be made to history by just one individual possessing that rare gift of moral courage. That's all for this month and indeed for this year. Wishing you all good things in the new year and who knows, maybe even some more episodes of Roscast. <laughs>